Revelation chapter 6, picking up our study once again. Return of the King. Our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. The title of this morning's message is The March of the Four Horsemen. Not long ago, I was reading some news headlines and one came across my screen that caught my eye. It said this, Billionaire Bunkers, How the 1% Are Preparing for the Apocalypse. And the article really explored the myth of the doomsday prepper. That guy who is oftentimes pictured as a Right-wing, gun-toting hillbilly who has two tons of beanie weenies in his cellar. (laughs) But here's what the article said. Say doomsday bunker, and most people would imagine a concrete room filled with cots and canned goods. The threat of global annihilation may feel as present as it did during the Cold War, but today's high-security shelters could not be more different than their 20th century counterparts. A number of companies around the world are meeting a growing demand for structures that will protect from any risk, whether it's a global pandemic, an asteroid impact, or World War III. These bunkers offer luxurious amenities. Many of the world's elite, including hedge fund managers, sports stars, tech executives, have chosen to design their own secret shelters to house them and their families in the event of a world-ending catastrophe. Gary Lynch, the CEO of a Texas-based bunker building company named Rising S, says that sales of custom high-end underground bunkers has grown 700% since the year 2015. There's another company called Vivo Shelters. They call their bunkers modern-day Noah's Ark. These 5,000 square foot luxury bunkers start at $3 million and offer all kinds of goods with a living quarters, a gym, a swimming pool, movie theater, hydroponic gardens, and a medical clinic. I guess if you're going to try and live through or survive the end of the world, you might as well do it in style, right? Well, I don't know about you, I'm not planning on riding out Armageddon in a hole. I'm planning on meeting Jesus in the air. Now we joke at the doomsday prepper, and as forward-looking as they might be, the reality is that the Bible does predict a coming world upheaval from which no man will be able to run or hide from. The Old Testament prophets such as Malachi and Joel and Isaiah, they called this the day of the Lord. Jeremiah and Chapter 30 and verse 7 of his book called it the time of Jacob's trouble. Paul referred to them as the last days in 2 Timothy 3.3. And Jesus in his Olivet Discourse gave it the name by which we commonly know it today, the tribulation. Now what is the tribulation? It is a future seven year period in which God is going to do three things. First, He is going to unleash His wrath on an unbelieving world. Then, He is going to discipline His chosen nation, Israel, and He's going to turn the hearts of God's people from unbelief back to Him. And then thirdly, during the tribulation, He is going to put an end to Satan's grasp on this world. 
we come to Revelation 6 and we see the curtain rise as the stage is now set for the final act of God's divine drama to begin. And this drama plays out in two theaters, in heaven and on the earth. We looked a few weeks ago at chapter 5 in Revelation, and there we see that Jesus Christ, pictured as the Lamb, comes forward to take hold of a scroll. It's the title deed of the earth. In that passage, it's pictured as a seven-sealed scroll. And Jesus possesses ownership of this broken planet. And now in chapter 6, we see that He has the authority and the power to open those seals. And each time a seal is loosed, there is a corresponding judgment that follows on the earth. And so Revelation chapter 6 describes the beginning of that tribulation period as those first six seals are opened. And as they are opened, all kinds of carnage and mayhem fill the earth. Now what's the good news? The good news of this is that if you're in the believing remnant, if you're in the church, if you're in Jesus Christ, the church will not be on the earth to suffer through these terrible times. But the bad news is that millions of people will be left behind and those who are left behind will have to endure the march of the four horsemen. Now we see this take place as we open Revelation chapter 6. I want to talk to you about these first six seals. Seal number one, as it is opened, reveals a mysterious conqueror. A mysterious conqueror. Notice verse 1 of chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So this first rider who breaks onto the world stage, is actually the final dictator of world history. And in many ways, he's trying to copycat and counterfeit Christ. He is none other than Satan's Superman. He is the Antichrist. And in the New Testament, as you study prophecy, you find out that he goes by a lot of different aliases. 27 different names, in fact. Old Testament and New. He's called the son of perdition in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. He's called the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2.9. A master of intrigue and a fierce king according to Daniel 8. When we read later in Revelation chapter 13, he's going to be referred to as the beast. And in Daniel 9, he's called the prince who is to come. Now this passage here in Revelation 6 gives us a lot of symbolism and these symbols teach us a lot about the character of this sinister man who's coming on the world scene. First, we see that he is riding on a white horse. And you know, you've watched the westerns, haven't you? The good guy always wears the white hat and rides the white horse. Well, in that case, the Antichrist is going to be seen as a hero. He's going to be seen by the people as a man of virtue and integrity. We see also that he wears a crown, which tells us that he's going to be a political leader. And then, we also read in verse 2 that he is carrying a bow. But this bow has no arrows. This is a sign that he will be coming as a peacemaker. The bow is actually an allusion 
to Nimrod, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 10, who was the first world dictator and the builder of Babylon. And just like Nimrod, the Antichrist is going to try and build his own kingdom. The capital city will be Babylon. And he will use all of his prowess and political maneuvering to gain the reins of world power. One commentator has said that the Antichrist will have the oratorical skills of Abe Lincoln, the charm of JFK, he will have the determination of Joseph Stalin, the respectability of Gandhi, the military prowess of Douglas MacArthur, the wealth of Bill Gates, and the intentions of Hitler. In fact, the Bible says that the Antichrist will be able to do what no other statesman has ever been able to accomplish in world history. Through his political expertise, he will somehow broker a peace treaty in the Middle East and he will vow to be the protector of the Jews. And we believe that under this covenant that he is going to form with the Jewish people, that will allow them to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. And that's going to be quite a feat considering that if you go to Jerusalem today, sitting on the Temple Mount is the Dome of the Rock. That's the third holiest location of the Muslim religion. But somehow the Antichrist is going to be able to deliver some kind of peace in this region. There will be some kind of negotiation to take place between the Jews and the Antichrist and the Muslims and they will coexist on this most hotly contested piece of real estate. But that piece is going to be short-lived. Daniel chapter 9 tells us what will happen. Verse 27, it says, He will make a strong covenant with many for one week. Now that week in Daniel 9 is not a week of days, it's a week of years. Seven in that means seven years. And half of the week, so halfway through, three and a half years, He will put an end to sacrifice and to offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. In other words, the Antichrist is going to break his treaty with the Jewish people. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2 that he'll go into that temple, he'll declare himself to be God, and at the midpoint of the tribulation period, he will stab the Jews in the back, and the mask will be torn off, and the world will see him as he truly is. He will broker and ignite a Another Jewish holocaust, according to the prophet Zechariah. Now, the world is hungry for such a leader. Somebody who can solve the deep problems that we face today. Problems of economy and politics. The world is looking for such a leader to step in. In fact, many politicians and leaders have already voiced their support for such a man to bring about a secular utopia. In 1957, there was a politician from Belgium named Paul Henry Spock. He was actually the president of the United Nations General Assembly. He was one of the principal architects of what is today the European Union. He said in a chillingly prophetic way this, We do not want another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of the sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all people, to lift us up out of the economic morass into which we are sinking. Send us a man, and listen to this, and be he God or devil, we will receive him. I don't think he understands what he's really asking for. Be careful what you ask for, right? The world is looking for Antichrist, but friend, I'm looking for the Christ. 
The world hopes for the man of sin, but I put my hope in the Son of God. The world will applaud this writer who presents himself to the world, but I am going to applaud and praise the last writer who comes in Revelation 19, tattooed with kings of kings, lord and lords, and comes from his mouth a sword to bring judgment. The world is waiting for the beast, but you know what? I'm putting hope and trust in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the first writer we see here, number one, is a mysterious conqueror. Seal 2 comes in chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, and there we see military conflicts. Notice what the passage says, verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So midway through the tribulation period, once the Antichrist is revealed, he will change out his bow for a sword. And his lust for power and conquest will spark wars. That is symbolized here by the red horse of seal number two, the second rider. The blood that will also be shed across the earth. Now Jesus also warned about this in the Olivet Discourse he said in Matthew 24, 6 and 7, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. And see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. You know that if you study the history of war, historians tell us that more people were killed on the battlefield in the 20th century, which we had World War I, World War II, Vietnam, Persian Gulf, and so on, more people were killed in the wars of the 20th century than the previous 19 combined. If you take that one stat and try to imagine what will the wars of tomorrow look like, it will put a quiver in your liver. How devastating will the wars of the tribulation be? Well, I was reading one article that kind of speculated on this. It was in the United Kingdom newspaper called The Telegraph. And in one article they reported that if you took the U.S. and Russian nuclear arsenals combined, they have a power of 6,600 megatons. This is a tenth of the total solar energy received by the earth every minute. And if the U.S. were to drop its largest nuclear weapon, the B-83, they said that 1.4 million people would die in the first 24 hours and another 3.7 million people later as the thermal radiation spread. Friend, I'm here to tell you that there will be no peace on earth until the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, returns to rule and reign. Seal 1, we see a mysterious conqueror. In seal 2, we see military conflicts. The third writer, seal number 3, we see meager crops. As the tribulation carries out here on the earth. Notice what happens in verse 5. He opened a third seal, and I heard the living creatures say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. Its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. 
Bible scholars are confident that the black horse here in this passage represents famine. Jesus also talked about this. If you want to look at it in Matthew 24, verse 7, He says, The nation is going to rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines. Now, notice what John mentions here. that The quart of wheat for a denarius. Now, a quart of wheat in John's day was a daily ration. It was the amount of food necessary to sustain one person. And the denarius was a Roman coin. It was equal to a day's wage for a worker. And what this passage is telling us is that in the days of the tribulation, that a man is going to have to work all day just to get enough food to feed himself. And then on top of that, not only is there going to be food shortage, but there's going to be inflation of the worst kind. There'll be less to eat, and it will cost more, and you can understand very quickly what that's going to do. Erwin Lutzer, who was a longtime pastor at Moody Bible Church, he wrote a book about Hitler's rise to power. And in that book, he talked about the things that were going on in the economy and in the government of Germany after World War I and right up to the time when Hitler took power. And he said that in order for the Germans to pay the heavy war reparations after World War I, they had to print a bunch of money. They printed all these German marks to the point that it, it basically devalued the currency and it was worthless. And the money was so worthless that what people would do is they would use it to start fires in the winter. He even tells a story that one woman went to a grocery store to buy a loaf of bread for her family and on the way she piled all her German marks into a wheelbarrow and she carted them down to the store. She parked her wheelbarrow loaded with German marks uh, outside on the sidewalk, went in to do her shopping and was going to pay later. And when she got what she needed, she was coming out to get the, uh, the wheelbarrow and full of money and she found out that the wheelbarrow was gone and just the pile of money was left there. And he says that is a picture also of the kind of inflation that's going to happen during the tribulation period. You'll have famine. You'll have economic crisis. It's going to crumble the world markets. And you just thought 2008 was bad. You just wait until the blood runs cold and there's nothing to eat and money is inflated. People will slit each other's throats for a loaf of bread. Now, the Bible also says here in this text, do not harm the oil and the wine. Now, in John's day, oil and wine were considered rich man's fare. That was luxury. And so what this text tells us is that the poor man's food, the bread, it's going to be restricted. But the luxuries of the wealthy, they'll continue to be untouched. And so the rich will get richer and the poor will get poorer. So we're on to seal number four. We've seen a mysterious conqueror and military conflicts and meager crops, but now it gets worse in seal number four. As it is open, we see manifold casualties. Notice verse seven. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. Its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. This last writer here, death, is going to be able to swing his sickle over the earth and we are told take a fourth of the world's population. Can you imagine that? 
How do you bury a fourth of the world's population? In 2018, they said that the world's population was 7.6 billion. What's a fourth of that? If you do the math, it's about 1.8 billion people all across our world dead. And notice, these judgments piggyback off of each other. Notice how the progression happens in the text. War leads to famine. Famine leads to hunger. Hunger leads to death. And notice also that this pale rider is given something in his arsenal. He's given pestilence, according to the text. And, verse 8, wild beasts of the earth. You know, the greatest killer of all time down through human history has not been bullets and bombs. It's not been swords and spears. You know what the greatest killer of all time has been? Bacteria and viruses. And we see that this is going to be unleashed on the earth again. In fact, listen to this little fact. They say that about 8.5 million soldiers were killed in World War I. You think, that's awful, that's terrible, and it is. But right after World War I, there was a global outbreak of flu, 1918 to 1919, and they say that 30 million people died of the flu in just one year compared to those four years of World War I being fought. Think of all the people around the world who are infected with AIDS, and yet they tell us that about a million people die every year because of AIDS. 36.7 million are living with HIV right now. 1.8 million of those are children. And yet when we read in this passage that pestilence is going to break out on the earth, it could be some form of new virus that we don't even have a classification of yet. It could be Ebola. We don't know, but friend, it's going to be awful. Now when you read here the beasts of the earth, you think, gosh, what could that mean? What kind of beast is God going to unleash on the earth to bring about death? Well, it may not be what you think. David Jeremiah had an interesting interpretation on this. Look at what he said. He said, The most destructive creature on earth is the rat. He is a menace to human health and food supplies. The nasty creature comes in more than a hundred species. Rats are extremely prolific, producing five or more litters of eight to ten babies each year. It has been estimated that the rats are responsible for the loss of more than one billion dollars of food each year in the U.S. alone, and their fleas carry a manner of all diseases. In the 14th century, the fleas from rats killed a third of Europe's population with bubonic plague. Something to think about. Now as I read this, and as I study it, you know what God hammered into my heart to tell you today? Listen, don't get too attached to this world. Don't fall in love with the things of the world because, friend, this world is passing away and you as a child of God, you are just passing through. Everybody who lives for the here and now, piling up riches on the earth, building up their own portfolio, placing their hopes and dreams on this planet. Look at what it's going to come to eventually. All the wealth, all the might of America, all of Europe and the rest of the world is going to be brought to its knees. And we haven't even begun to see what God is going to unleash at this point. This is just the beginning. Seal number five is open. And as that is open, we see martyred Christians. Notice verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, 
I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Martyred Christians. This is a picture of the souls who die during the tribulation period professing Christ as their Lord and Savior. Do you know that Christians are the most persecuted group on the earth? In 2016, here's what the U.S. State Department said. Christians are the single most widely persecuted religious group in the world today. The persecution today is worse than any other time in recorded history. It's estimated that an average of 322 Christians are killed each month for their faith. 214 church buildings are destroyed as well. The top persecuting nations in the world are North Korea, Iraq, Eritrea, Afghanistan, Syria, Pakistan, Somalia, Sudan, Iran, and Libya. But when the Antichrist comes on the scene, the Bible says that he's going to turn this into a business. He's going to unleash hell on earth for anybody who will not bow the knee and call him God. He's going to turn on the Jewish people and slaughter them as well. As bad as it is now, the persecution that's going on all around our world that the media will not even report, as bad as it is now, it's going to be worse during this time. The blood of the martyrs will run in the street. Listen to what Jesus said about this, Matthew 24, verse 9. He said, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my sake. Now, a big question, Mark, that a lot of people have is, Okay, so the church isn't going to be on the earth during the tribulation period, right? Okay. If that's true, then how are people going to come to a knowledge of Christ? How are they going to believe in the gospel and be saved? Because this seal is about the martyred Christians who believe in Christ during the tribulation and who are martyred, and their soul goes to be with the Lord, and they're crying out for justice. They're saying, Lord, how long are you going to let this happen? To you avenge our lives. So how are people going to believe? Well, think about this. Later on in the book of Revelation, in chapter 11, we learn that God is going to send two miracle-working preachers to the earth. And they're going to be given authority to do miraculous things, and they're going to preach the gospel. And then in chapter 7, the Bible mentions 144,000 Jewish ministers evangelists really, who are going to be sealed by God. They're going to be divinely protected and they're going to be sent to every corner of the earth to preach the gospel. So the gospel is going to go out to every corner of the earth during the tribulation. But there's also something else. When the church leaves, think about what the church is going to be leaving behind. Yes, some empty buildings, but how many millions of Bibles and Christian books and tracks, and videos on the internet, and old sermons, and CDs of music, and MP3s. How many of those things are going to be left behind by the church that's still going to be on the earth as a witness to the lost people who will be left behind? That's why in the front of my Bible, I, carry, I always carry a gospel track in my Bible. It has a simple plan of salvation in it. 
because I might need to lead somebody to the Lord. But you know what? If the rapture were to happen today and this Bible were to be left right here, this gospel tract would be there and somebody might come along and find it and read it and find Jesus and believe in Him. Now the saints in this passage cry out for God's justice. And the Lord says that His delays are not His denials. There are still many yet to believe. And yes, I still believe that there is going to be a great revival that's going to take place. And I believe that that great revival, that great turning to Christ is going to happen during the worst period of human history. When everything is stripped down, when man is hopeless and he has nowhere else to turn to and his knees buckle under the pain of what God is doing in the earth, they will turn to God. Millions and millions will. But God is actually giving more sinners time to repent and believe in Christ. Then we come to the sixth seal. And the sixth seal is the worst one by far. Here we read of massive cataclysms. As we close here today, look at what verse 12 says. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell on the earth as the fig tree shed its winter fruit will be shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves. And among the rocks of the mountains, calling for the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? My goodness. As you read, the sixth seal brings fierce convulsions to the earth that will literally be off the Richter scale. The fault lines will buckle. The continents will shift. Even the islands will be moved from their place, the Bible says. Those not buried in the rubble, the Bible says, will have to dodge rocks, meteors falling from the sky. The earth's sun will be doused and the blood moon will rise over the earth. This is the great and terrible day of the Lord that the Old Testament prophets spoke of. Joel and Isaiah and Ezekiel Men's hearts will fail them for fear. Now think about what Vance Havner said years ago. He said, the day will come when the most expensive piece of real estate will be a hole in the ground. And the most terrifying part of this whole passage is that panic will absolutely grip the hearts of humanity and they will cause them to cry out to everybody but the one who can save them. In fact, we are told here that they will reject God. They'll reject the rocks of, of ages and cry out for rocks of mercy to fall on their head. And instead of believing in Christ, instead of turning to Him, many in the world, most in the world I would say, will harden their heart. They will only clench their fist harder in the face of God. They will beg for a merciful death rather than endure one more day of the tribulation. And the sobering fact is this is just the beginning. There's 14 more judgments to come. There's trumpet judgments and bowl judgments. 
And Jesus said, if I don't shorten this time period anymore, there'll be nobody left on the earth. Why do, you, why do I preach this? This is not popular preaching. <laughs> Have you figured that out yet? This isn't what you hear from most pulpits today. Why, why do I preach this? Well, number one, it's in the Bible. If it's in the Bible, it's the Word of God. If it's the Word of God, then we need to hear it and heed it. And you know what our culture needs more than anything? is a healthy dose of the fear of God. If reading this doesn't put fear in the heart of the sinner, I don't know what will. Our culture needs to hear that, look, if you don't bow your knee to God, He'll cause you to bow your knee. Our young people need to have a fear of the Almighty God who's going to shake the very foundations of this earth. You say, well, why else do you preach it? Because this reveals the justice of God. How many times has something terrible happened on the earth? Some tragedy, some sickness, something that you don't have a reference point for, and you say, why, God, did you allow this to happen? Why, God, do you allow the evil to prosper and for the rich to take advantage of everybody else? Why did that guy get off scot-free? I'm telling you that there's a payday someday and that God is going to bring fitting and ultimate justice to this world. And as I read this, I see that God gets the last word. I preach this because there is justice and God holds the gavel. I preach this because Jesus is coming back. I don't care what the world says or how bleak and dark things look or how foolish it may sound. Oh, they've been saying that for 2,000 years. Well, where is He? He's on His own timetable and every day that He tarries is another day of mercy for a sinner to repent and trust in Jesus. So you ought to be glad that He hasn't come back yet. But when He comes back, the church is out of here and friend, if you don't know Him, you'll be left behind. And I preach this with a tremble in my voice. Because the sand in the hourglass is running out. What greater reason for men to embrace the gospel than to hear a message like this? You say, well that's not right preacher. You shouldn't scare people into heaven. Oh yeah? Why not? Isn't the fear of God something that should drive men and women to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where we can find mercy and forgiveness? I deserve hell. The floor ought to be opened up and I should be dropped into an abyss. But God in His mercy sent His Son Jesus so that nobody would have to face this. What better reason to preach this than to implore men and women to let go of the world, let go of the sin and the things that are holding back and pursue Christ and run after His cross. As I finish here today, I think about that imagery of the people crawling in the caves, crying out for the rocks to fall on them because pestilence has hit their body. There's nothing to eat. War is broken out. And all the terrible things. You know what I thought about? The story behind one of the church's most beloved hymns. There's a young English preacher who was taking a walk through the countryside one summer afternoon. His name was Augustus Toplady. 
And as he walked through the countryside, a flash thunderstorm came over the skies. You know how it is in the summer, those storms that just come up. And in a matter of moments, he was in a deluge. And he looked around as he walked in that open field as the lightning was dancing across the landscape. He said, I've got to find a place that I can hide. And as he ran across the countryside and the, the rain pelted him, he looked over and he saw a cleft. He saw like a cave. And he ran into that cave. And there he waited as the storm raged around him. He found a refuge. And as he sat there listening to the rain and the thunder and the wind, the Holy Spirit began to stir in his heart. He was inspired to write something down that God was giving him, but he had a pencil and he had no paper. And he just happened to look down and he said when he looked down, he saw there on the floor of the cave an old crumpled up playing card. He picked up that playing card and he began to scribble down the verses to one of the church's most beloved hymns. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Hide myself in Thee. Let the water and the blood from Thy wounded side which flowed be of sin. The double curse, save me from wrath and make me pure. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in Thee. And what I say to you in closing today is, friends, there is a storm coming on the earth from which no one will be able to escape. However, there is good news that God has provided a refuge. His name is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, God's only Son. He can save us from the wrath to come, wash us in His blood, clothe us in His righteousness, and spare us from the terrible days that are going to befall this earth. If you don't know this rock of ages, you can today. You can meet Him personally. You can meet Him no matter what your condition is, how bad and messed up things in your heart or in your life are. You can come to know Him.